Prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to the Shigonath. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens. And the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His ways, his were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the you stripped the sheath. You stripped the sheath and you rode on your horses. Oh, excuse me. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in your anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses in the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, and my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the the people who invade us. And though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength, and he makes my feet like the deer's, and he makes me tread on my high places." To the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word and your work. Lord, through Habakkuk, Lord, through our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray today as we finish the prophet Habakkuk. For the time being, Lord, we pray, God, that you would open our minds and our hearts to hear and to believe and to understand what you have inspired in your word. And, Lord, help us to learn and to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. 
Well, we began uh, this series, um, as you've probably picked up on, right? We read the entirety of chapter 3 of Habakkuk. We're going to finish this thing today. But as we began looking at Habakkuk, we, we started with a simple question of, is it wrong for a believer to complain to God? Or is it wrong for a believer to question God? Now, we could expand on that, right, and ask, is it wrong for a believer to be angry with God or frustrated with God? I think if you go through the Old Testament, you see pretty quickly that we could answer that question with a firm no. But at the same time, even when we do that, we did conclude that from what we've seen through Habakkuk so far, that when we do presume to question God or when we presume to complain to him or be frustrated with him or be angry with him, we still should always arrive at the same destination, which is humility and repentance and resting in his sovereignty. Even if or even when we cannot fully comprehend what he's doing or understand why he has chosen to act, or in Habakkuk's case in chapter 1, not chosen to act, ours we learned from God in chapter 2, verse 4, is to be righteous and live by faith. And so what we see now in chapter 3 of Habakkuk is that this is finally where he has ended up. Habakkuk has now arrived at a posture of righteousness by faith. And so as we look at this final chapter today, I believe what God provides for us in Habakkuk is an example of a process of arriving at a posture of righteousness by faith. That's a wordy sentence, but still, <laughs> those will actually be our two major key words today, posture and process. Because I think these two words really help us to ultimately lead us to the destination of humility and repentance and resting in God's sovereignty. And so as we begin this morning, remember... Habakkuk, he had, he had been complaining to the Lord God. He'd been complaining to Yahweh. And he had been complaining to Yahweh based upon what he knew about Yahweh. Right? The law, Torah, Scripture had told Habakkuk that Yahweh is a holy God and Yahweh is a God who could not look upon evil or wickedness. And so in chapter 1, we read Habakkuk, he's confused, he's frustrated because he looks around him and he sees the wickedness and the sin of the people of Judah, of God's covenant people, and he sees their rejection of God's law and their oppression even of their fellow Judeans. And so Habakkuk wonders there at the beginning of chapter 1, why has Yahweh remained idle in the face of this wickedness, particularly the wickedness of his covenant people? And then to make matters worse, why would Yahweh choose to then use an even greater wickedness, the Babylonians, as a means of judging his people if he could not look upon wickedness and sin. And so what we have here in chapter 3 is Habakkuk's prayer of faith. This is really a mirrored parallel, or a we talked about this some in Sunday school, a chiastic-ish structure of Habakkuk. We have a mirrored parallel to his complaints from chapter 1. So Habakkuk now has arrived at this posture of faith that rests in Yahweh, even though he does not understand completely what Yahweh's purposes are or why God has made the decisions that he's made. Because Yahweh has promised him, he says, look, judgment is coming. It is indeed going to come. But Yahweh has also promised, as we saw last week through the rest of chapter 2, he has promised to judge the idolatry and the wickedness of the wicked. But even still, Yahweh commanded Habakkuk and any of us who would be righteous to live by faith. And so out of this now posture of faith, Habakkuk writes this in verses 1 and 2. He says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shagonath. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known, and in wrath, remember mercy. 
So before we go any further, there, there's a few terms just even in these two, two verses that really speak a lot about Habakkuk's posture of faith, about his change in attitude. If you want to look at posture of faith as change in attitude, that's another way you can understand that. But these will be helpful for us as we attempt to adopt our own posture of faith. And the first here is in that really weird word in verse 1 where he uses this word shagonath. Now, this is a word, when we read it, we usually just skip over it, right? We come to it in the Psalms, or we come to it in the other prophets, and we're like, I don't know what that word means, so we're just gonna, I'm just going to move on and read the Scripture, right? But a lot like Habakkuk 1.1, where Habakkuk tells us the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, Habakkuk 3.1 is also the word of the Lord. So let's try to understand what's going on here, right? So full disclosure, and here comes the most underwhelming answer you will ever hear from the pulpit. Bless you. So brace yourself for the mediocre on this, right? Nobody knows exactly what the word Shagonath means. We have no clue, right? Like, we have no clue other than through the context in which it is, which it is always used. Shagonath is possibly, and I'm stressing the word possibly here, a liturgical term. Or even a form of a tune of music. Just to give you even more clarity on how much scholars have no clue what this word means, some suggest that it is either a song of lament or a song of excitement and praise. I mean, nobody knows, right? So we have to look at the context of when it's always used. And so the context here, we see that it has to do with music for two ways. In Habakkuk, first, this prayer is formatted much like the Psalms. But also... At the end there, we saw at the very end of the whole passage this morning, he says, to the choir master with stringed instruments, telling us that this prayer is actually a song. This prayer is a hymn, which means that it is meant to be sung, which means also that you should not worry because I'm not going to sing it. Right? I will leave the singing to Connor, right? and I will just walk through it and, and speak it and teach through it, and that's how we're going to leave this. But you know, if you want to sing it, you can sing it. But starting in verse 2 then, so we have Shagonath. We understand that this is a hymn. So Habakkuk starts to offer us then the context of his hymn. And he begins here with this phrase. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. So much like his complaints in chapter 1, what he does now is he now offers a hymn of praise that is also based out of what he knows about the Lord God. Throughout this book, we've seen Habakkuk has been reminded of Yahweh's work to save his elect throughout salvation history. And so the context and the content of Habakkuk's hymn centers upon the themes of God's redemptive work for his people. And this is exactly what we do when we sing the Psalms and we sing hymns and we sing spiritual songs. This is why we also sometimes sing the creed like we did this morning. This is why we sing the doxology at the end of our worship every week. When we sing, we're singing the history of the redemptive work of God. And so it's here that we begin to see how Habakkuk has arrived now at a posture of faith. Because notice, he interestingly, as we read through this, you probably picked up on this, but Habakkuk is not given, nor is he recording brand new revelation. Habakkuk is actually recording revelation that is based on how God had already revealed himself throughout salvation history and throughout his scriptures. So this is why understanding at least the historical context of these works is so important because This is how we can learn from Habakkuk and how we can also arrive at a posture of faith. We, too, must remember how God continued to work and continues to work 
for the salvation of his elect, for the salvation of his church, his bride. And so for Habakkuk, as well as all of Israel and Judah, understanding this salvation history, they look back over salvation history and they look back on how God had worked through history. And when they did that, their minds immediately went to the Exodus. And it immediately went to the crossing of the Red Sea. Because these were the salvific events of their history. This is where God saved them. Whereas the conquest of Canaan and the inhabiting of the promised land, this signified for them paradise. This signified for them the covenant promises, the manifestation of rest in God. And so in Habakkuk's theological context then, he's praising Yahweh based upon this particular theology of salvation and sanctification. Based upon what he had heard, what he had heard of the report of God coming out of slavery in Egypt meant redemption and deliverance from sin. Crossing the Red Sea, which would prefigure baptism, was a cleansing from God. Crossing the Jordan as they entered the promised land somewhat consecrates them for the, quote, ministry of conquering the promised land. And so this is how God fulfilled his covenant promises to his chosen nation, to his elect. He provides them with salvation and sanctification and then rest in him in his promised land. And so now for Habakkuk and for Judah and for Israel, they could look back upon this history and know that not only was Yahweh their God, but Yahweh was a God who promised to dwell with them as long as they kept the covenant. And so this reminder here in verse 2 is a reminder of God's redemptive work in history, and it causes Habakkuk to fear. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. It causes him to rightly process his frustrations and complaints to God when he looks around him and sees the wickedness of his people, and he looks beyond the horizon and he sees the Chaldeans coming at them. And then frankly, what Habakkuk does is he begins to humble himself, and he begins to repent. He goes on and he says, In your work, O Lord, do I fear. Calvin writes here and he says, By saying that Habakkuk feared God, what he's saying is that he makes a confession, and he gives evidence for repentance. And then he tells us, he says, We cannot from the heart seek pardon unless we first be made humble. Habakkuk has been made humble. And so he humbles himself before God and he repents. And then he asks in the rest of this verse, he says, Lord, revive your work. Make it known in the midst of the years. Basically, what Habakkuk is saying is he's not merely content to be the only one who remembers how Yahweh has been faithful to his covenant throughout the centuries. He desires that the memory of Yahweh's covenant faithfulness be revived among all of his people, to be made known to all of them. And so Habakkuk, he's asking God, Revive your work among your people in a, in a similar way in which you worked among us and were active among us when you called us out of Egypt, when you crossed the Red Sea with us, when you brought us through the wilderness. Yahweh, I have remembered your work. I have recalled your work of salvation. So I humble myself and repent. But Lord, due to the wickedness of your people and the wickedness of the Babylonians, please make yourself known like you did in the past. And then he ends this verse and he says, but in your judgment... When you pour out your wrath through your chosen instrument of Babylon, Lord, please remember, in your wrath, remember that you are merciful. And so moving into the hymn proper then, we start in verse 3. We see, he, we see how he begins to adopt now this posture of righteousness by faith. Habakkuk, 
he remembers God's salvation history, and he, re- he starts to sing about when God had manifested himself and expressed himself to his people, specifically through their deliverance from slavery in Egypt and their victory during the conquest of Canaan. And so we see those two themes played out in these verses. This contains all of verses 3 through 15, and we see it contained in those three, those, that big chunk of Scripture. So starting first with the Exodus in verses 3 and 4, Habakkuk, he starts to give us some geographical clues that help us to see that he's thinking and recalling God's salvation history in the Exodus. In verse 3, he says this, God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. And so this word Teman is a word that could also be translated as the word south. All right? So if you're thinking, if you're looking at the maps in the back of your Bible, right, you understand where Israel and Judah are located, right? Right there in the crest of the Mediterranean. And Egypt is a little further south. So Teman meaning south. But he doesn't stop there because he also says the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now Mount Paran could mean a couple of things. It could mean the wilderness of Paran, which is in the Sinai Peninsula. So again, looking at your map, right? You have Egypt, then you have Sinai, then you have Arabia, and then you move up into the Promised Land, right? But the wilderness of Paran was a place where Israel would settle sometimes during the Exodus, where the children of Israel would settle. But Mount Paran is also sometimes, like Mount Horeb, referred to as the mountain of God or Mount Sinai. And so here, what Habakkuk is saying is he's he's remembering and he's referencing the splendor of Yahweh. He says, God came from Teman, he came from the south, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, from the mountain of God, and his splendor covered the heavens, his splendor His glory cloud settled upon the mountain when he gave Moses the law. And then when he moved us out, his glory settled upon the tabernacle when he wanted us to rest. Furthermore, when he wanted us to move during the day, he was a pillar of cloud. And when he wanted us to move at night, he was a pillar of fire. And so he covers the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. But then he goes on and he clarifies even further in verse 4 and he says this, God's brightness was like the light. And rays flashed from his hand, but there he veiled his power. And as I was reading this, you get to that point because Habakkuk is saying, God's glory is covering the earth and the earth is full of his praise, but then he's veiling his power. What does he mean here? Because this doesn't make sense, right? And so what does he mean by veiling his power? I think that there is a subtle difference that's at play here between a full manifestation of the glory of God and a manifestation of the power of God. So what we have here, I think, is a similar sentiment at work to when Yahweh hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and he covered his face as his glory passed by. The brightness of God here in verse 4, the rays flashing forth from his hand, serve as a similar veil that hid Moses when the glory of God passed by, telling us that While all of these manifestations of Yahweh's power that Israel had witnessed and that Habakkuk is remembering, so everything throughout that was poured out on Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, manna from heaven, quail from heaven, all of these things, these were only a partial manifestation of the fullness of God's glory. Because, as we would later know, God's glory would later be fully manifested and has been fully manifested in the person of Christ Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. Calvin writes here, he says, God hid his power at this time, at this point in redemptive history, because he did not intend to make his power 
indiscriminately known throughout the entire world, but rather particularly to his own people. And so while Yahweh was indeed manifesting his power and his glory, it was still veiled until the appointed time of the coming of the Messiah. So in verse 5, what Habakkuk does, just moving on, he continues now to make a more direct reference to Egypt. He's given us some geographical clues, but now he's more direct, and he says this. Before Yahweh went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels, it followed at his feet. These plagues and pestilence are often pictures of God's judgment throughout Old Testament history, especially against wickedness and against sin. And so in Habakkuk's remembrance of salvation history, he's recalling the plagues and the pestilence not only visited upon Egypt, but frankly visited upon Israel as they wandered in the wilderness every time they sinned and broke the covenant. And so and then in verse 6, he goes on and he builds on this and he says, God stood and he measures the earth and he looked and he shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low and his were the everlasting ways. He's telling us that judgments and plagues, judgments of plagues and pestilence, these are worldview earth-shattering judgments that are poured out by God. Some estimate that close to half of the world's population died in the Middle Ages when the bubonic plague spread across the world. That is a lot of people. A hundred years ago, the Spanish flu uh, broke out among the world. This was also during the time of World War I, but some estimate that at least a third of the population died from the Spanish flu. We can somewhat relate due to the recent pandemic of our own. Now, not as many people died, and regardless of where you fall politically on the issue, because we know it's a heightened political issue. This virus has changed the way in which we live, quite possibly for good, at least for a long time. There will be long-term effects from this outbreak that we do not yet fully comprehend, and we may not in our lifetimes. But the point is that judgments of pestilence and plague shatter worldviews. And that's just an illustration for us, because the same was true for Egypt. Due to pestilence and plagues, Egypt lost their entire economic slave workforce. Their worldview was shattered. Their country and their culture was shattered. For Israel, many would literally die in the wilderness from judgment such as this because they broke faith with God, whether that is through a plague of fiery serpents or not. And so as we adopt a posture of righteousness by faith, what this verse reminds us, verse 6 reminds us of, is that everything in life is temporal, right? He says, Yahweh shakes the nations. Nations will fall, regardless of how strong they are. God's sending of plagues and pestilence and the removal of the children of Israel from Egypt destroyed a multi-thousand-year dynasty in Egypt. Furthermore, going on, he tells us that eternal mountains are scattered. If you've ever seen the Rockies or the Alps, now the Appalachians are gorgeous, but they are nothing compared to the Rocky Mountains or the Alps, right? Really, the Appalachians are going to be more like these everlasting hills compared to the Alps or the Rocky Mountains. But these things that seem like they're going to last forever are scattered and they're sank low. But then he ends this verse and he says, but God's ways, his ways are everlasting. They are more sure than mountains and dynasties and hills. And then in verse 7, he remembers the Exodus and their beginning of their wandering specifically. He says this, I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. So Cush and Mission, uh, excuse me, Cush and Midian, too many shushes in there, right, for my, for my tongue. 
Cush and Midian are areas around the route of the Exodus. Now, if you were to go to the back of your Bible and look, you probably, all of your Bibles probably have a map that have multiple possible routes for the Exodus. But the most likely one was one that went south, went to Teman, crossed the Red Sea, and then across the Sinai Peninsula. But southern Egypt used to be known as Cush. This is the area that's now Ethiopia and Somalia and, and uh, Sudan, basically the Horn of Africa. This was all part of Egypt back in the day. Midian, on the other hand, was in the Sinai Peninsula. This is where Moses' wife was from. This is where his father-in-law, Jethro, was a priest of Midian. And so what Habakkuk is doing in this verse is he's remembering that all of these people, the people of Egypt, the people of Midian, they are all trembling in fear at the work of Yahweh. Not only for what he did in Egypt, but what he did by his people and through his people. Throughout the wanderings, Yahweh would conquer other nations as the nation of Israel made their way to the promised land. Rahab attested this in Joshua 2.9. She says, we know that Yahweh has given you this land that we live in and that the fear of you has fallen upon all of us. So that all of the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. They all tremble in fear at the power of Yahweh. But then we come to verse 8. In verse 8, we start to notice there's a tone change in this hymn. Really, this is a bridge, or if, if you are musical at all, this is a key change, right? When we do an octave shift and we go up, I can't do it, so I have to go down to kind of try to match the octave, right? So this is an octave shift right here in verse 8. And the reason is, is because we see what Habakkuk is doing is he's now turning just a bit, and, he's, and he is addressing the Lord directly. And he remembers Yahweh's particular deliverance of his people the element of water. This is really fascinating because what God, what we see here is that God's deliverance through water is a common biblical theme throughout Scripture. And it has vast implications on our understanding, not only of baptism, but of salvation itself. In the ancient Near Eastern mindset, so whether that is your Hebrew or not, so you're thinking Egypt, Arabian Peninsula, right, Mesopotamia, this whole area of the world, in that mindset, it was understood that the deity who could control the waters of creation, that creation was founded upon, the deity that could control that was the true God. And so notice how Habakkuk's key chains works here when he starts to address the Lord God. He says this, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Yahweh? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses... On your chariot of salvation. For this hymn, Habakkuk recalls Yahweh's use of water was for the purpose of saving his elect. So consider through all of biblical history, this is going to be a huge, just flyby understanding of biblical history, what, what Habakkuk is singing about here. In the beginning, we're going that far back, in the beginning, God controls the chaotic waters of creation, and he forms the earth. And out of the chaotic waters, he draws dry land. And then from that dry land, he forms man. Then, now moving into the book of Exodus, God controls the waters of the Nile by turning its water into blood. Or from its water, calling forth frogs and other plagues to judge the wickedness of Egypt. God would later control the waters of the Red Sea by parting it, and the people would again cross on dry land. 
And out of that dry land, God again creates, like Adam, he creates a people to covenant with. God controls the waters of the Jordan as Israel moves into the promised land by parting it as well. He stops the river, and they again cross on dry land. And they enter into their rest after the conquest. And from that crossing, God consecrates his covenant people for the work of the conquest. Remember, these are the key events of their salvation history. When an ancient Hebrew would look back upon the deliverance from Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea and the Jordan River, this was their moment of salvation. This is when God had manifested himself and his power to save them from their sins. But we need to take this further because we're in the church. We understand that there is a new, better, and more complete manifestation of God's salvation. How are we to adopt a righteousness by faith from this text? Christ the Lord went down into the waters of the Jordan for baptism to consecrate his ministry. Then Christ then tells Nicodemus in John 3 that one must be born from above by two elements, by the Spirit and by water. And from the heart of Christ, as he is dead on the cross, a spear is thrust into his side, and from his heart, blood and water pour out. We are commanded by Christ in Matthew 28 to make disciples first by baptizing them. And then out of the baptismal waters, from the dry husk of land that is our dead hearts, God creates a new covenant people for his own. And he reconciles us by the blood of Christ to himself who is our justification and righteousness that is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the bridge and the key chains of the context that we need to take forward from here. And so here, with this understanding of creating a covenant people, what Habakkuk does is he now moves into the conquest through verses 9 through 15, and he remembers the conquest. And so in verses 9 through 11, what he does is he again Throughout this entire recollection of Yahweh's work in history, Habakkuk is constantly adopting this posture of righteousness by faith. He says in verse 9, Yahweh draws his bow and he sings that Yahweh, he puts an arrow at the ready. He knocks an arrow on the string and he readies himself to go to war for his elect. And then in verse 11 specifically, Yahweh, uh, Habakkuk recalls Yahweh's stopping of the sun During the conquest in Joshua 10, he says the sun and the moon stood still in their place. And then in verse 10, excuse me, verse 12, Habakkuk sings that Yahweh, he threshes again. He's threshing the nations in anger. He says, you marched through the earth in fury and you threshed the nations in anger. This again, it continues Habakkuk's remembrance of the conquest, specifically referencing the wicked nations that inhabited the land of Canaan. And we should note here that there's an implication. Yahweh still and always will have sovereignty over the nations, but he also will again thresh the nations in anger for the sake of his elect. Because, as we read in verse 13, because God went out for the salvation of his people and the salvation of his anointed. In this verse, what Habakkuk is doing is he's actually helping us see a triple meaning in how Yahweh throughout history, has threshed nations in anger for the sake of his chosen covenant people. He goes on, You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, and you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. So there's three meanings here. The first, specifically within the context of salvation history, Habakkuk is remembering Moses. Moses, who was anointed 
as the figure to thresh the nation of Egypt to lead the Hebrews out of it. Second, is seen through the context of both Joshua and the children of Israel as Yahweh's anointed people that threshed the nations that inhabited the land of Canaan. But third, finally, and more importantly, is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between the woman, you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the wicked. For Habakkuk and for the church, this points us forward to the Davidic king, the Messiah, the anointed one, to Christ the Lord, who, as Yahweh's anointed, would go out from his heavenly tabernacle for the sake of tabernacling in the wilderness and exile with us, who would thresh the nations by crushing the head of the wicked. All for the salvation of his anointed elect, for the salvation of his anointed church. Bede would write here, he says, Christ did indeed go forth for the salvation of his people so that he might save his anointed bride. And so that he might grant to us who have been thoroughly anointed to be sharers in his holy name. And so now with this going out, this going out of the anointed of Yahweh, both his people and his Messiah, For the sake of saving his elect, Habakkuk now starts to wind down this song in verses 14 and 15. And he remembers the complete destruction of the enemies of Yahweh. In verse 14, he says this, You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. Habakkuk says this destruction was so complete that God used their own weapons to accomplish the task. In the same way, through Christ, God used death to destroy death itself. And then in verse 15, Habakkuk recalls Yahweh's control over creation one more time, again, over the chaotic waters. But in this case, these not only serve his purposes for salvation, but also the waters are in total submission to God. He says in verse 15, "...you trampled the sea with your horses." the surging of mighty waters. Christ displayed the same power when he walked upon the water. And so, how would God have us learn from Habakkuk's experience? Or how would he have us to begin to adopt our own posture of righteousness by faith? So Habakkuk, as we've seen through this book, he had, he's gone from complaining to resting in Yahweh. He undergoes a process of transition. He began by complaining. He complained through frustration, through anger, through fear, through confusion. But then we see now he ends here by remembering God's salvation work throughout history to redeem his people. And in doing so, this enables Habakkuk to humble himself and to repent and to rest in God's sovereignty. Habakkuk's posture of faith speaks volumes to the church. And like Habakkuk, we need to follow a similar process in our frustrations and in our complaints. Because when we do, we need to remember God's salvation work through the literal flesh and blood body of Christ Jesus. Which brings about humility. Which brings about our repentance. Which results in our resting in the sovereignty of God. And in verses 16 through 19, we can see Habakkuk's example of what a posture of righteousness by faith looks like. He again, he says this, I hear... 
Going all the way back to verse 2, I have heard the report of you. I hear the report of your work. And he trembles. He shudders at the completeness of what God has done for his people. He humbles himself and he repents. But he also recalls how Israel and Judah have consistently broken the covenant. Rottenness, Rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. I cannot hold my body up. And he understands what God has done for them, how they've squandered it. So he, accept, so he accepts it with humility. He accepts with humility the judgment that Yahweh has ordained, but also Yahweh's promise to judge the wicked. He says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Even though he may not understand it or fully comprehend it, he will rest in God and wait for God's ordained outcome. And then in verses 17 through 18, we see, What adopting a posture of faith during confusion and frustration and even exile and judgment can look like. He says in verse 17, even if food becomes scarce, even if resources become unavailable, if there are no means for me to provide for myself or even my loved ones, verse 18, I will still praise the Lord God and I will rest in him because he is the God of my salvation. And I can take joy in him. So rest in the knowledge of his active work in saving you, in sending Christ and raising Christ and regenerating your heart that was dead in sin and calling you out of the darkness of your sin and into the light of Christ, Jesus our Lord. Rest in the sovereignty of Yahweh who is our strength because in verse 19, God, Yahweh, is our strength. And he makes my feet like the deer. And he makes me tread on high places. The Hebrew here suggests that Yahweh is the strength of our faculties. He actually holds our frail bodies up when we cannot hold ourselves up. And he makes us sure-footed. He stands us back up and makes us as sure-footed as a deer in order to tread on the high mountaintops, upon the rocks, upon the times of frustration and exile. And Habakkuk's remembrance of God's mighty acts of salvation, this allows him to rest In God's sovereignty, it gives him a sure foundation in God. And so, as we close here, as we close Habakkuk and we move on from him for a while, question the Lord if you have to. If you don't understand what he's doing in your life, ask him. Complain to him if you feel led to. Because your father is a good father and he loves you and he keeps his promises. And even if you don't understand or comprehend his answers, remember Remember, your righteousness is founded, it is sealed, and it is kept in Christ Jesus alone. Miles Stanford would write in his book, The Green Letters, he says that every believer is accepted by the Father in the righteousness of Christ. And there is nothing to commend us to God except the righteousness of Christ. So, beloved, remember, remember how the Lord has in his sovereignty worked in and through history to preserve you, to redeem you, and to call you to be part of his covenant people. Remember how the Lord has kept his promises and fulfilled his word. As believers in Christ, this takes a posture of remembrance of Christ, who came, who died, who was raised, who ascended, and who will come again. And in the meantime, as we do life as exiles in Babylon... As we suffer together, as we worship in the gathered community and the communion of the saints below and above, and as we live by faith in the righteousness of Christ, 
come to the table and remember salvation history. Thanks be to God. Amen.